Welcome to another episode of Unbecoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. As always, you can find us on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. If you've been listening to the podcast addressing the question, Is Evangelicalism a Cult?, Perhaps you have some insights to share or a question that might have emerged as you listened. Please do send those to onbecoming at gmail.com. Additionally, if you've been enjoying the podcast so far and would like to help us grow, please recommend us to your friends or review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or consider donating to our Patreon, which includes access to the new mini-podcast titled Sunday School with Dr. Benson. We've now reached the sixth characteristic of what Lifton calls ideological totalism. That language is itself a little complicated, so let's address it here. If you were living in a society in which the state or the political system had absolute power, you'd be living in a totalistic society. As I mentioned before, Lifton's essay was initially intended as an analysis of Chinese communist thought control, in which those who were seen as enemies of the state were re-educated. When a particular party or political system completely dominates what can or cannot be expressed, or for that matter, perhaps even thought, there is political along with social and economic control. Exactly how totalistic a regime can become depends on how successful it is in controlling people's actions and thoughts. A totalistic belief system or ideology is one that, in effect, has an answer for everything. It's one-stop shopping. In the previous episode, I talked about how evangelicals love the locution, absolute truth. And they usually believe that they have that. Lifton speaks of loading the language with thought-terminating cliché. That's such a perceptive insight that the cliché has the effect of stopping any thought. The cliché appears to encapsulate truth in such a way that it cannot be questioned and is considered ultimate. I've suggested that if you really had ultimate truth or absolute truth, that would probably mean you'd know all there is to know. None of us are ever going to be in that place. That term is obviously related to the word totalitarianism, which is an adjective meaning a political system in which those in power have complete control and do not allow people the freedom to oppose them. If you remove the word political from that definition, would you be able to apply this definition to evangelicalism, that evangelical leaders have complete control and don't allow for opposition? Of course, it should be mentioned that complete control is, at best, a goal or perhaps an ideal for totalitarian authorities. It can't ever be fully achieved. But that's not exactly what's at issue here. The real question is, Does evangelicalism attempt to be a system that provides all the answers to the normal questions that human beings ask? As usual in this podcast, my goal is to pose questions, provide what I think are the most appropriate answers, and then leave you to decide what you think. It's your job to decide if evangelicalism is totalistic in nature. One of the features of evangelicalism is that it offers itself as a definitive solution which would seem to be a kind of ideological totalism. You might ask, so how do they do that? First, believers are given a set of beliefs that are thought to be definitive, so they can't really be questioned, and complete, so there's really no need to look anywhere else for truth. Second, fundamentalist and evangelical institutions, 
churches, schools, and families for that matter, often provide little information about other forms of Christianity except to dismiss them out of hand. Information regarding other religions is usually not available, which means that evangelicals really do not know much about any other religions. If the result were merely ignorance, that might not be so bad. However, as usual, when there's a lack of information, people often provide their own. Thus, most evangelicals have a view regarding, say, Muslims, and that view isn't very positive. The result is that most evangelicals grow up experiencing only what their parents, pastor, and Sunday school teachers want them to experience. An evangelical child is not encouraged to become familiar with other ways of thinking and being in the world. You might think that since children go to school, then they'd be exposed to other ways of thinking. And that's true if a student were to go to a secular school. However, even in a case like this, evangelical children have been warned over and over that the world's wisdom is false and perhaps of the devil. In effect, such children have been inoculated so that even though they hear the science teacher say that the world is 13 billion years old, they already know that this is false, that it is man's wisdom. Yes, I'm very deliberately using the masculine pronoun here, since evangelicals talk in these terms. If you want a concrete example, consider the bill in Florida that's been labeled by critics as the Don't Say Gay Bill. If you respond by saying, well, the state of Florida isn't an evangelical institution, my response would be, not yet. They're working on it. Given what we noted in the previous episode, there are many evangelicals who want nothing less than total control of what can and cannot be taught in schools, and what they would allow or disallow has everything to do with evangelical beliefs. Those who support this bill argue that it provides parents with much greater authority over what their children are taught. This is merely a ruse. Yes, it would allow evangelical parents more control over their children. But the flip side is that non-evangelical parents, for instance parents who would want their children to know what being gay means, have their freedom taken away. As so often is the case, freedom of religion usually becomes lack of freedom for those who are not part of the religious sect. At best, then, such a bill would help evangelicals keep their children in the dark about sexual orientation. I don't want to go into the details in this episode, but I see myself as someone who remained largely ignorant about my own sexuality. Back when I was growing up, there wasn't a lot of information available about gay people. Let's put this another way. You can't decide that a particular way of being in the world, in this case being queer, is for you if you didn't even know that that was an option. If you're thinking, well, couldn't you just have looked this up? My response would be, you would first need to know that you should look it up. How would you know that? If the evangelical world, which you are a part of, tells you that homosexuality is one of the worst sins imaginable, then looking further in the matter would be very strange, probably on par with an evangelical kid deciding to do research on Satan. You already know that Satan's bad, so you're not going to be trying to decide if Satan might just have some redeeming qualities. He dresses well, he's fun at parties, he tells great jokes. However, let's just say for the moment that somehow, despite the void of information, you decided that looking further into sexual orientation was an option. How exactly would you do that? The simplest answer today would be you get on the internet. 
When I grew up, though, there was no internet. But even if there had been, if you've been told over and over that gay people are bad, what would cause you to change your mind or even think about changing your mind? Applying this point to the Florida bill, it's clear that some parents simply don't want their children to know that there are other ways of being in the world. But otherwise, I see this as a very deliberate attempt to keep children in the dark. What I wonder is this. Do evangelical parents think that if they just withhold information from their kids, that none of their kids will ever turn out to be gay or trans or whatever? Because if that's what they're thinking, all they're doing is setting at least some of their children up for a very difficult and rocky way forward. I have seen the kinds of students such a strategy creates, and it's not a pretty picture. So one important part of the bill is to withhold information from students. Yet there's another motivation behind it. The thrust of the bill is to make teachers and administrators afraid. Why might they be afraid? Here's the answer. According to the bill's sponsors, the bill is not designed to keep people from talking about the existence of the LGBTQ plus community. Specifically, they say that classroom discussions about the mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub, for instance, which is gay, are permitted. What they oppose is instruction about sexual orientation or gender identity. Therein lies the problem. How would you be able to talk about what happened at Pulse without somehow slipping over into the lane of traffic called instruction? As always, the devil is in the details. Or perhaps in this case, it's the angel who's in the details. The bill actually says, and now I'm quoting, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur. So how could you talk about anything regarding or even somehow adjacent to sexual orientation without being afraid that you might be sued? The answer is simple, of course. You have no idea of exactly when such a discussion might veer into instruction, which means that it's best never to mention anything along these lines if you don't want to fight a lawsuit. I've mentioned before that in the evangelical world, you often don't know that something is wrong to say or think until you've already said it. Here's an example. If a student were to ask how it's possible for people of the same gender to marry, would talking about the Constitution constitute discussion of sexual orientation? You don't know, and I don't know either. Charlton Copeland, a professor at the University of Miami Law School, says the following. Vagueness is deployed for certain purposes. People aren't just vague because they're ignorant. They're not vague because they're sloppy. They're not vague because they are lazy. Sometimes they're intentionally vague to move the site of where the political fight is going to take place. As he goes on to point out, the bill is effective if it merely makes people afraid to say anything over which they might be sued. In that sense, the vaguer the bill and the concept of instruction regarding sexual orientation, the better since no one really knows what constitutes instruction regarding sexual orientation versus, say, merely talking about it. I'm a philosopher who's been trained in both analytic and continental philosophy, but I don't see how you could possibly draw any line here, because the distinction between talking about versus instruction is far too murky. Or to put that differently, it is so murky that it could be drawn anywhere, which means that anything a teacher might say could result in a lawsuit. The teaching profession is not lucrative, so you'd not be able to pay to defend yourself in a lawsuit. As it turns out, teachers are usually overworked and underpaid, 
why would they want to put up with this further indignity? Yes, I use the word indignity with great purpose, for the bill assumes that teachers don't know what's right to say. Only parents know that. But why would parents understand this better than teachers? That's right, they wouldn't. Unfortunately, given the current situation, I would advise anyone aspiring to become a classroom teacher to find a different gig, hopefully one that pays better and doesn't open you up to lawsuits. You're probably well aware of the fact that evangelicals often homeschool their children. Well, there are various reasons that parents will give for doing this. The main issue, and this is confirmed over and over again, is that they don't want their children exposed to things that they personally don't believe. That's one reason why many students arrive at evangelical colleges without a clue as to what the other options are out there. When they take an introductory philosophy course, they suddenly discover, first, that there are quite a few different alternate views on just about everything. That's the first shock. But the second shock is much greater and more disturbing. They discover that the people who hold these alternative views are able to defend them much more cogently than the evangelical kids expected. Many of them read the case for the other side and come away thinking, what's wrong with that? Do you see the problem? One of the main reasons why evangelical kids stick to evangelical views is they don't have enough information about the other positions to make a choice. This is exactly the place where evangelical parents want their children to be, not knowing much about any other viewpoints. If it weren't for the fact that such views have already been labeled bad or worldly, and basically the same thing, they might actually find them believable, which is what evangelicals fear. Evangelical kids have already been told that such teachings or ideas come from the world, which is evangelical speak for everything that's not part of evangelicalism. Anything labeled as worldly is instantly discredited. But you can see how such labeling would end up causing so much confusion Students read something written by the worldly people that seems convincing and logically argued, but they also know that this view is inherently bad. How is one to make sense of that reality? This is just one way in which evangelicalism discredits the intelligence of its members. You might think that writer X or book Y is okay, but that's just because you've fallen for the lies of Satan. Part of this is related to how evangelicals carve up the world. There are the true believers, those who are unsaved, and then those who preach some sort of false gospel. The unsaved are viewed as targets for evangelism, sometimes referred to as crops to be harvested or fish to be caught. With these categories already firmly in mind, it would be hard to see how one could learn from either an unbeliever or someone who preaches a false gospel. Along with such a view goes the idea that evangelicals are merely strangers here in this world, passing on their way to heaven. The goal as one passes through life is, as the book of James puts it, to keep oneself unstained by the world. But there are so many passages like this. Paul writes, So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. That's the quote. That's the full quote. 
The believer is supposed to simply accept this verse, but it's a very strange list of things. The word translated as passion is pathos, which in Greek means either good or bad desire, but in the New Testament, it always means something bad. In other words, your desires are fundamentally bad. When I would tell my students that such eminent theologians as Thomas Aquinas believed that all fundamental human desires are good, it was clear that they had never heard anyone say anything like that before. I don't know the extent to which some of them might have concluded, well, he's a Catholic, what does he know? In fact, most everything that surrounds us is, from an evangelical point of view, dangerous. Paul contends that the world has been shown the truth, but it was rejected. And now I'm quoting. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. If that's not a sufficiently general discreditation of human thinking, then I'm not sure what would be. Worldly wisdom is shown to be mere foolishness. But just to spice things up, Paul then goes on to connect all this foolish human thinking with homosexuality. He writes, For this reason, namely that they fail to honor God, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Perhaps you now have a better idea of why the don't say gay bill exists. For Paul is right, rejecting God leads straight to homosexuality. Okay, so maybe I shouldn't have used the word straight. But you do see how weird this passage is, right? Rejecting God leads to homosexuality. What? What's the causal mechanism at play here? Yes, it simply doesn't make any sense at all. But Paul is, alas, a master at talking about stuff that's bad in a way that eventually implicates everything. The logic here is inexplicable. But the believer isn't supposed to read this in a logical fashion. Instead, the believer simply needs to accept what Paul says is the truth without asking any uncomfortable questions about its lack of logic. What makes this point so weird is that in the book of Titus, which used to be thought of as a book written by Paul, we read, To the pure all things are pure, but to the corrupt and unbelieving nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciences are corrupted. Isn't that an interesting idea? Those who are pure find all things pure. But wait, didn't Paul already warn us against the dangers of the world? Here it would sound like, if you're already a believer, then all things are pure. So is the world bad or not? Why wouldn't, say, philosophy be pure if you're pure? It's very hard to put these two passages together. And let me just say that I'm barely scratching the surface. Even Jesus is reported to warn against those who will come and teach false doctrines. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That's what Jesus is reported to say. There are at least three problems here. The first, of course, is that having shown that human intelligence is unreliable, now human beings are asked to distinguish between true and false prophets. 
But how are we supposed to do that if we can't trust our intellects? To be honest, I have no answer to this question. But note that this is very useful for pastors who are interested in controlling their flocks, since the pastor becomes the de facto expert on what is and what isn't acceptable. It puts the layperson at a distinct disadvantage. A second problem here is the mention of the elect. Such a doctrine has an important place in Paul's theology and has led to the Calvinistic idea that some people are elected by God before the foundation of the world to be saved. Strong Calvinists even insist that God has likewise chosen certain people to perish in hell. And all of this was done long ago, so the doctrine goes. But which of us are among the elect? A typical response to such a question would be, well, if you have to ask, you're probably not in that select group. To people like me, I read such a verse and the ones written by Paul and wonder, what does all of this mean? However, I will save the explication of Calvinism for another episode, since it is very complex and needs a lot of unpacking. A third problem is simply this. Doesn't the evangelical world already have its own collection of false prophets? When I read about Jim and Tammy Baker, Oral Roberts, who demanded his followers to send him money or God was going to take him home. Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, who says that her sermons are more effective for cancer than chemo. Creflo Dollar, who just needs $65 million for his jet. And all the rest, I think these fit the description of false prophets rather well. As Gershwin puts it, who could ask for anything more? Many of these people preach that those who are not wealthy lack the required faith, or, in the case of some of these folks, haven't given enough money to their ministry. Jesus, on the other hand, routinely praises poverty and doesn't seem very keen on wealth. In other words, it's relatively easy to see these folks as the very folks Jesus warns against. So far, we've been largely focusing on the word and concept, the world. But there are other words that get effectively redefined. Edmund Cohen, in his book titled The Mind of the Bible Believer, speaks of logicide, in which words are placed in strange contexts and used in a very different sense than usual, which effectively kills them. One of these is the word life. Consider what Jesus says to his disciples. Those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. That's such a dramatic and memorable saying. But here's the problem. What is that supposed to mean? I've heard countless sermons on that idea, but it just doesn't make sense. We're supposed to find our lives by losing them for Jesus' sake. If you're inside the evangelical world, this sounds completely believable. But if you're outside the evangelical world, this is at best confusing. It's not confusing within the evangelical world because one is supposed to accept it without question. And that's just the beginning of the confusion regarding the word life. Paul writes, For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. That phrase sounds very pretty, but an inspection of what this could possibly mean is much less pretty. Paul seems to be saying that real life is when I give myself to, to Christ. Jesus is recorded to have said that those who try to keep their life secure will lose it, but those who lose their life will keep it. But how exactly does that work? The usual way of making sense of this is that one becomes, as it's often put, dead to sin. 
But this is a very different use of the term life than anything found in, say, the Hebrew Bible. If we take it that some people are chosen by God, then we can say that while they are alive, they must die in this metaphorical sense. When they die in this metaphorical sense, then they actually become alive. But it's only in heaven that one becomes fully alive. On earth, at best, one is partially dead. There's the same kind of problem with the concepts or terms wise and wisdom. Paul writes, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The contrast here is clear. There is the wisdom of the world. Yes, we're back to the world. And then there's the wisdom of God. I'm generally on board with the idea that God's wisdom, by definition, would have to be better than that of human beings. But saying that God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom seems such an odd way to express this. I take it that Paul is suggesting that God's wisdom appears to be foolish when viewed from the standards of the world. But what exactly does that mean? Just so you know, the world of philosophy in which I work has addressed this very passage, so I've heard some possible answers. But here's the problem. When a term like wise is defined so at odds with its usual meaning, the problem becomes, what is wisdom? On Paul's account, any kind of worldly wisdom is seen as inferior to the wisdom of God. He says that, and here I'm quoting, this is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, devilish. But then are human beings capable of having wisdom? If wisdom simply means whatever is at odds with the world, how is it possible to continue to call this wisdom? Don't we need something like a new term? Well, I've only hinted at the problem between the dichotomy faith and reason. Here we need to take a somewhat closer look. The word translated as faith in the New Testament is always about having faith in Jesus as a leader. It never means believing a certain set of things or doctrines. But alas, the word faith has become a huge problem, particularly to the extent that it is defined in opposition to reason. Faith becomes synonymous with not doubting or not questioning or not thinking. The problem here is that once faith becomes removed from reason, then any thinking gets read as lack of faith. It's precisely for this reason that evangelists can say utterly ridiculous things and then appeal to the listener's faith. You just need to believe. I've given some examples in the episode on mystical manipulation, but they're worth mentioning here. The evangelist Mike Murdoch says that if listeners give a gift of $1,000, then, and now I'm quoting, God is going to wipe out your credit card debt. How are people expected to believe this apart from simply having faith that somehow God will do this? What would have stopped Bonnie Parker from giving thousands of dollars to Kenneth Copeland instead of spending that money getting cancer treatment? Moreover, the way these evangelists justify such claims is that one simply needs to have faith. The problem here is simple. Once you've suggested that human reason is utterly untrustworthy, there isn't much left for a person to defend himself or herself against such mendacious claims. Once someone has established himself or herself as an authority, 
how is one able to disagree or to say that such authority is unwarranted? In my first book, I spent quite a bit of time considering what it means for Paul to say the following. Watch out that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world, and not according to Christ. The account I gave of this passage was that surely none of us want to be captive to anything like deceit, and I stand by that account. However, when I published that book, I was still working for an evangelical institution, which is why I couldn't make the following observation. Perhaps Paul isn't saying that all human tradition or wisdom is bad, but it's hard to escape this conclusion, for he seems to equate philosophy, deceit, and human wisdom. Once again, there's disparagement of the world. But here we come to something that's particularly relevant for our time. If you believe that only the Bible is the source of truth, that the wisdom of the world is folly, that human reason is defective, then it should come as no surprise that evangelicals don't much care about facts. To those outside looking in, it may seem like insanity to argue that climate change is just some made-up thing. But to those inside looking out, it seems eminently rational, since the very concept of reason has changed. True reason equals whatever the Bible teaches. Everything else is just the devil trying to fool you. Science is another worldly thing, which has given us evolution and other tales, again, from the devil. Another term that gets radically redefined is freedom. Paul writes, But thanks be to God that you, who are slaves to sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become enslaved to righteousness. Such a statement doesn't imply anything like free will. In fact, it basically rules that out. There is no sense of free will in the New Testament though that is also because the idea of free will was still in the process of being formed. Turns out, evangelicals talk all the time about free will, assuming that the Bible teaches this, but it actually doesn't. You have, in effect, two choices. As Bob Dylan memorably put it in his brief evangelical phrase, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. If this means that as human beings we privilege whatever we think is important, then yes, you are going to have to privilege something. But that's rather different from saying that you can either be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Neither of those conditions would be described by most people as free. And it gets worse. If you believe that certain people are elected to salvation and to live in heaven, then all of the other people simply don't have a chance. They are quite literally doomed from the start, and there's nothing they could do about that. Evangelical Calvinists, yes, there are quite a few of these, are convinced that the non-elect are headed to hell, and there's nothing that they could do to stop that. But if that's the case, then why bother to act as if there were another possibility? The word love is another one that gets redefined. Jesus is said to have said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then goes on to say, They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. The love Jesus is talking about seems totally removed from the kind of love we experience in the world, 
which has to do with caring, accepting, forgiving, empathizing, listening, supporting, and such things. Unfortunately, the kind of love Jesus talks about here is utterly conditional. Jesus is only going to love you if you keep his commands, otherwise you're just part of the world. This conditional love is, alas, very much part of evangelicalism, which also explains how evangelicals could love Trump. As long as Trump does something to promote evangelical values, then he turns out to be good. Jesus speaks of loving one's neighbor, which means doing something positive or constructive to help one's neighbor. In other words, it's not just about having some kind of feeling. But many evangelicals view this as a kind of burden that needs to be shouldered only because, well, God commands it. Not surprisingly, evangelicals try to make this as easy as possible. I'm not sure where the phrase originates, but evangelicals often use it. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our loves could be so neatly organized? You can hate the sin as much as you like, but you're supposed to love the person who's committing the sin. How is that possible? Yes, I can understand that if you think someone is doing wrong, then you don't want to love the wrong. But it's really not possible to set up such rigid boundaries. As a queer person, I've heard this kind of rhetoric expressed very often, once even by a very prominent philosopher, whom I'll not name here. But the New Testament gives us a very different conception of love, one completely disconnected from eros, since eros now becomes associated with lust. Instead, we have agape, which appears to be a neologism coined specifically for Christianity. However, this is once again defined in a strange way. Love is said to be the fulfilling of the law. Or another definition goes like this. This is love, that we walk according to the commandments. However, if this is the case, then love means something like being disciplined. It means being obedient. Yet, of course, what this new focus on love permitted was the overcoming of the requirements of Old Testament law. Here's another term that becomes problematic. Evangelicals love to speak of spirituality as a quality that one could potentially measure and obtain, though the term is rarely defined and the meaning seems to be highly fluid. It's something that often seems to slip away at the very moment you think you've finally reached it. I guess it's supposed to mean someone who prays a lot, who reads the Bible, someone whose thoughts are pure and character is exemplary. But if you want to be part of the evangelical world, you have to talk the talk, not just walk the walk. The talk is, alas, largely determined by white, heteronormative males. If you're a woman or black or gay, you're taught the language of white male evangelicals, and you're expected to speak that way. Yet the language evangelicals use, while it seems precise, is remarkably vague and often empty. Even the most complex aspects of human existence, birth and death, are described in the language of cliché. Lifton terms this, and here I'm quoting, all-encompassing jargon, prematurely abstract, highly categorical, relentlessly judging. In Lionel Trilling's phrase, the language of non-thought. Most evangelicals embrace this language wholeheartedly. One way to be a prominent member of an evangelical group is to be the one who most uses those cherished cliches. It's like a badge of membership. Should you decide to question any of these sacred cliches, then you should expect fierce resistance from the group and its leaders. 
It's no wonder that so many students came to see me with questions about their faith. I was known on campus as someone safe to talk to. I let students know that should they come out of the process of working through beliefs and doubts, either without arriving at a conclusion or at a conclusion that the evangelical community wouldn't like, I would support them without question. But just to be clear, that practice was not typical. Some colleagues would refuse to write letters of recommendation for those who had fallen away or had lacked faith. And this just gives further evidence that evangelicalism tends to be coercive. Let's go back to Cohen, who says this, Evangelicalism during its halcyon days in America was biblical only in a very superficial sense. In its deeper substance, it evaded the Bible's teaching, especially the negative implications of that teaching. The outer forms and traditions were retained, but in every psychologically significant instance, a modern, functional idea was substituted for the biblical one and clothed in biblical language. I think that's a correct statement. We've already noted that accepting Jesus as your personal Savior is an idea that is foreign to the Bible, as is the idea that Jesus is standing at the door of your heart knocking. These are modern inventions that are then read into the Bible as if they had been there all along. Cohen also has this to say, The best things in the Bible are superficial. Another way of understanding this kindly, philanthropic, and surprisingly tolerant old-time religion we described earlier, which is basically what he is using to speak of evangelicalism, is to note that its proponents took the lovely surface impression of Jesus and the Gospels and then built a whole new religion out of them alone. You might think that's too strong a statement, but I think it's largely correct. In evangelical circles, there is often the mention of what is called historic Christian orthodoxy, and the implication is that evangelicalism simply carries that on. But that's not true. Evangelicalism may be the best thing since sliced bread, but it is an invention. To give its founders credit, it's a very crafty invention. In a previous episode, I mentioned that John Wesley developed a way of preaching that reached people on a very deeply emotional level. What he did, in effect, was to provide a very different way of thinking about what constitutes the gospel, one that eventually led to Billy Graham and the Campus Crusade for Christ Ministries. Cohen also notes that in the New Testament, the words truth and lie undergo a change. Paul actually cites what philosophers call the liar's paradox, namely, Cretans are always liars. And then he goes on to say, that testimony is true. But the reason why it's called the liar's paradox is because it can't simply be affirmed or refuted. If it's true that Cretans are liars, then the Cretan who says this will have told the truth. But wait, aren't Cretans liars? Cohen thinks that the strategy behind Paul's statements on truth is to, and I'm quoting from Cohen, tear the matter of truth away from the realm of facts, to incline the believer to dissociate them from one another, considering them as pertaining to wholly separate planes. Instead of truth being connected to facts or to a state of affairs, the word truth becomes the opposite of the word lie. Here's how Paul expresses this in Romans 1. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. One New Testament writer actually provides a definition of a liar, and it reads as follows. Who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? 
Thus, even the notion of truth is defined in terms of another dimension, one that is held to be higher than the one in which we dwell. But these redefinitions mean that these words function very differently in such a context. These clichés become what Richard Weaver terms ultimate terms that can be divided into God terms or devil terms. Years ago, I wrote a piece titled, They'll Know We Are Christians by Our Clichés, in which I argued that clichés are the coin of the realm of evangelicalism. As Edward Sapir puts it, he talks like us is the same as saying he is one of us. Lifton points out that the reduction of the deepest and most important ideas to clichés results in constriction. In effect, we are linguistically deprived, and so find it difficult to think about ourselves and the world in anything other than clichés. One possible result of that linguistic deprivation is the following, and now I'm quoting from Lifton, a retreat into a rigid orthodoxy in which an individual shouts the ideological jargon all the louder to demonstrate conformity, to hide conflict and despair, and ward off the fear and guilt that would result from using words and phrases other than the correct ones. As far as I can see, that's where evangelicalism stands today. It has disgraced itself by continually not living up to its own standards. But the response to this internal failure is to cast the blame on the world. It's not our fault. It's the fault of the world. Thanks for listening to another episode of On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. I hope you'll join us next week.